Look where we are, it's serious business. It is serious business. It's a lovely morning here. Yes. I don't know, it's a horrible morning where you are. Maybe you're listening to this in a haunted barn. I thought you were going to say in a bog. Which or a honest, bog, yeah, yeah. yeah. A haunted bog. A barn in a bog. Yeah. And a bog down in the Valio. We're watching <laughs> Maleficent this time. Yes. Well, we're what we have watched Maleficent this time, and we're going to talk about it. Yeah, and this is going to be interesting because neither of us had seen this one. We'd never seen it before. No, I had started to watch it, failed a few words in, and I was wrong to do that. Because... Yeah, I don't understand what because you mentioned this before yeah. that the first time you tried to watch Maleficent, you were put off within thirty seconds. Well, the the first the opening seconds still put me off. It's just that they they only last. No, it was less than that. It was like ten seconds, and that's how long the irritating bit lasted. No, it's huh. something about the tone of like across the misty mountains <laughs> there was once a lady and she was queen, and it comes back again at the end. You know, yeah. and it's like and her name was Maleficent. <laughs> that I don't like. <laughs> Who is it? Who's the narrator? Um, I think it was Janet McTeer. I don't know, don't know who, that, who is. that is. So anyway, nothing against Janet McTeer. It's purely the tone yeah. of it. I, the, you, you like how you didn't like the narration on Tangled. Uh, yeah, I didn't okay. like the narration on this. Yeah, but, but I didn't f- switch off Tangled well, in a rage. The thing is, I was having one of the... I was just very hungry. Right. It was one of those days where you've taken at least two hours longer than you should to get round to making <laughs> lunch, and now you're in a desperate, blind panic to think of what to put on the telly. So you're on a hair trigger. Yeah. Yeah. It was okay. like, okay, no, oh, <laughs> I'm having an episode of this. <laughs> right. So forget about that. That wasn't a proper review. Um, and that was years ago. Yeah. This is the proper review. Is the proper. Here comes the proper review of Maleficent. So I watched this film in two sittings. Yes. And the first sitting was an almost entirely positive one. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, the second sitting, it, at no point did I hate what I was watching. This wasn't a, a Tim Burton Alice situation where yeah. minute to minute it's an unpleasant experience. So I had an overall positive experience, but it's not a solid film, is it? No. No, it's... It's a film of many, many interesting ideas, mm. almost none of which end up coming to any fruition. Which is unfortunate, because those in- ideas are very, very intensely interesting, and very unusual for Disney. Like, yeah. y- there are a lot of Disney firsts in this, I would say. You know, thematic ideas that Disney have never tackled with the kind of directness yes. that they have in this. But Definitely. it doesn't all add up to what you'd hope based on what they're attempting to do. Yes, and there's one moment, like, right at the end, which I need to correct myself on. Mm. Because in, I think it was the Alice podcast, I said, I described Maleficent as uh, Disney's first and least successful response to Wicked. And the other one I was thinking of was Frozen. Yeah. But that Frozen came first. Yes, it did. Turns out. So a big twist moment at the end is kind of just lifted out of Frozen and just sort of not quite as impressive as it wants to be. Yeah, I mean... Presumably both were in development yeah. around the same time, because this was only a few months after Frozen, if I yes. remember rightly. The ways in which this film and other Disney films keep going back to the same thematic material as Wicked is something that we'll get to mm. in greater depth a little bit later. Let's start from the very basics. Disney's Sleeping Beauty yeah. had in it their version of the sort of Wicked Fairy character from that story. Do you? How familiar are you with Sleeping Beauty? Um, More familiar with the Disney version, but I don't remember it straying too far except in terms of who the characters were. I think your Sleeping Beauty is basically 
Um, Disney get the opening more or less right. There's gifts bestowed on this baby by fairies of some sort. And then yeah. there's a wicked one who goes, well, I'm going to put a bad spell on. I'm doing a curse. Yeah. You're going to prick your finger on the spinning wheel of a spindle. And, and I think it was specified a hundred years rather than forever. I thought so, yeah. And then... Okay, you can be woken up by love's first kiss. Along comes a prince, and as they are wont to do in fairy tales, goes, Brilliant, she's asleep, I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> land one on her. That, and she wakes up, and that's the story, I don't know. D- has any previous, like, well-established version of Sleeping Beauty attempted to put, set up a motivation for why the evil fairy slash villain character does what she does? Off the top of my head, not that I am aware of, no. Right. Although I could simply have overwritten childhood fairy tale reading with the yeah. VHS copy of Sleeping Beauty that well, yeah. we got quite young. Um, no, what what sets the Disney version apart? Um, most interestingly, here we have this is the Linda Wolverton version of yeah. Of the story. I was surprised and to see her name come up again. Yeah, well, she, she seems to be the go-to screenwriter for revisionist feminism, revisionist feminist revisionist feminism, revisionist feminist revisionist revisionist versions of these stories. I did a little wiki look up on her, and um, her career is very interesting to me. It's she starts off as a, a sort of a children's theatre person. She goes on to write stuff like real Ghostbusters, Chip and Dale. Oh, okay. Um, they're not by her. She just did like one episode. No, I know, yeah. But there was one thing that she seems to have written like most of, and I can't remember what it was now. To Google. Yeah. Dennis the Menace. So the... What? Uh, <laughs> not, not the Beano one, yeah. the American one. She wrote like 65 episodes of that, which has to be most of it, right? I would have thought so. Or all of it. So, she wrote two episodes of Ewoks. Yeah, so that's who she was. <laughs> she was a TV writer and then someone... So she goes to her agent, look, what I want to write is like Disney. Yeah. And her agent went, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, you are not on that level. You're not ready for that. And she went, okay. And what she did was she just went to Disney, yeah. went to the front desk, left a copy of her young adult novel there. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they would have called it YA in those days yeah. or whatever it was and said give quote just give this to someone to read yeah and a couple of days later she's got a call from Jeffrey Katzenberg going hey huh. we're doing Beauty and the Beast come and write it wow okay um, <laughs> so because she was doing plucky young strong female characters yeah yeah and yeah that's what they needed and yeah yeah an executive like that you can well imagine that they yeah exactly it's like oh perfect this yeah. is exactly the kind of thing that i in my business money sort of way had a perception i was after yeah. <laughs> we've now in the last couple of weeks watched three different linda yeah. wolverton screenplays and the quality and thematic rigor of mm. the three of them varies very wildly mm. from production to production okay. and I'm more inclined to say that's much more to do with the specific individual nature of each production yeah. than that she is a wildly inconsistent writer. Yeah. Clearly she is very, very subject, yeah. like most screenwriters, to whatever the director is able to bring to it. And, you know, as we said in the Looking Glass one, we thought James Bobin really brought something to her screenplay on that. Yep. And that Tim Burton took away a lot yeah. from her screenplay from the for Alice in Wonderland. And this one is... Towards the Wonderlandier end of the scale in my book, but to to me, I think it's right between the two. Because here we have a lot of perfectly fine stuff put down, yeah, interesting ideas. But with it's difficult to know how, like, where to start and what to really dig into. But I suppose what I'll say is that the the biggest problem of this 
is that it wants to be a completely new story about Maleficent. Yeah. But it's attached to the ball and chain that is Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, I think this is a good point to start diving into. What To what degree is this Sleeping Beauty or not? So, what I was about to say before, when I said that this is Linda Wolverton's take on it, her thing is taking fusty old fairy tale tradition and turning it into a modern and and feminist angled yeah. thing. What's interesting is that the old Disney version of Sleeping Beauty, I would hesitate to... I mean, I'm not going to call it feminist. Yeah. But it was very interesting in that rather than being a story just about a prince who comes and saves a girl's life by being a man. Yeah. It's actually about these three old women. Yeah. The main characters of Sleeping Beauty are the three fairies. Yeah, that's that's true. And so it's interesting that the the sort of the Linda Wolverton reimagining of it, it makes perfect sense to to give Maleficent the uh the the key role. But it it's odd how it kind of then flounders around stuff that the old version actually did quite solidly well. Yeah. The three fairies are just nothing in this. Yeah, but are still in it. On the subject of adaptation, then. Yeah. Those three fairies in the old version are these really solid characters that are well acted and drawn and animated and they're well drawn in the sense of their, you know, yeah. fullness. And they're incorporated into the... St- I mean, they yeah. are. They kind of they kind of carry the story. They carry the, They are the protagonists from start to finish. They come yeah. down in the opening ceremony and they lead everything, including the action, everything the prince does, they're helping and guiding him. It's all them, really. Yeah. In this one, then, with them, with it being important for that not to be the case, because the the script calls for Maleficent to be the main character and not to be overshadowed really yeah. by by any other women. Yeah, um, they are just turned into little gaggy nothing characters. And I was very. This was the moment at which I should have realised that the film was not going to be a proper adaptation of Sleeping Beauty, but from a different perspective, which yeah. I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be a Lion King. Two, two one and, and a half, half. one yeah, and a half, yeah. Lion King three, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, Rosencrantz and Gilderstern, Sleeping Beauty, where all the same stuff as happened in the Disney film happens, but now we realise this was going on in the background. That isn't what it is. It tries to diverge from that and be a totally different retelling of the story, but it only does that about halfway through yeah. after slavishly doing what I thought it would be to begin with. Yeah. This is, to me, that's what divides the two halves. You have that whole intro that I thought was totally fine, totally yeah, successful. Yeah, same, same. That introduces a uh, protagonist Maleficent, sh- shows her wronged in a, we're going to get into that yeah. later, because that's a very big moment, and then leads up to, now, in this new context, here is why what happened at the ceremony, at the birth of the princess, yeah. here's why it happened. yeah. To the extent of, and I don't know how familiar you are with the Sleeping Beauty, but as someone who watched it on VHS a billion times growing up, I can tell you, when you get Maleficent showing up at that ceremony, it is word for word exactly the same as the one in the Disney thing. Yeah, yeah. Or even stuff that doesn't matter, all the stuff about, and the rabble, all of that. Yeah. That is, there's there's a few extra lines, but it's basically built around the framework of the exact same script. You can see that the film is designed to be built around and pivot around that 
moment of exact recreation. Yeah. And up to and including that, I was happy with it and it worked for me. Yeah. And I thought she was great as Maleficent. In that moment, I hadn't been sure. Yeah, yeah. And then when she showed up and she somehow had the voice down. And yeah. it's a very un- like unusual voice. Yeah. She is generally good in this film. Yeah. And in the, that scene... She was scene- the right pick. Yes, oh, absolutely she was. And in that scene where she really just gets to recreate original iconic Maleficent, she nails that yeah. in a way that, that is unusual. Yeah. And it's certainly unusual for the even for these Disney live-action remakes mm. where you would have thought that that kind of thing is the whole point. Yeah. It's not a reinterpretation of a classic character. It's not like a weird deconstruction of it. It's just like... No, look, it's Maleficent, except it it's is. a real person. Because now we're in live action, exactly. Yeah. That's the draw. Here it is, and then in this version, here's why she's doing this. I actually did think that the recontextualizing of why she would put love's first kiss into the spell worked fine. Yeah. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's fine, and it carried me along as much as I expected. Yeah. So it's a shame that it kind of disintegrates after, after that. that yeah. yeah. Isn't it? Yes, it's it is. It's the let it go of this film. <laughs> but, like, much worse. <laughs> but you're right in terms of that it serves that same sort of purpose that the entire film feels like it's building to that point. It's this one big Yas Queen moment. <laughs> yes. That's what it is, right? Yes, it That's, is. Like, I was going to describe the film as that up until that point, and then, and then it sort of drifts loses, off. It just into... loses its way. It yeah, it becomes, does doesn't become like terrible or anything on that level it's fine i don't mind this film and i quite liked this film so i think i came away with a more positive experience than you did because i it was fine i thought it was okay but um i know you're quite sort of personally affected by structural problems in things and this yeah. happened. <laughs> yes yeah it 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 does fall apart almost completely as a piece yeah. of storytelling after after the it does the, 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 the christening scene. Now you're going to be better at explaining that. I'm, I'm looking forward to your sort of explaining to me exactly how this goes wrong. The way in which I noticed it went wrong, yeah, is that it never quite knows who it's about. Yeah, that's one of the big ones. Yeah, it seems to be about Maleficent until Sleeping Beauty has to kick in. Yeah, and that's the point at which basically when she's old enough to become a character and the story can be about her. That's the point at which the film doesn't seem to know what it's going on about anymore. Because yeah. sometimes it is a Timon and Pumba knockabout comedy. Yeah. And and sometimes it's like Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to be honest, you've kind of nailed most of what I was going to say. Right. Um, okay. So uh, what film are we doing next time? <laughs> No, come on. Let's 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 pick the bones of this. Here's, the one, here, here's what I was leading up to. This is what I did notice: is that because of this new reframing, the point at which it is necessary, because the story here is Sleeping Beauty, to bring in a prince, yeah, is the point at which the film kind of goes, "Oh, what was I doing?" Because it's incompatible. Yeah, you can't have the prince and have the version of the story that's being done, which is also fine. And I don't mind, by the way, the way that they sort of turned that round later on. Yeah. Although it borrows a bit too much from Frozen. But the problem is you have this prince that they have to bring in. Yeah. But the film fundamentally doesn't care about him. Yeah. And wants him out the door. In fact, his big scene later on, he is physically shoved out the door and the door is locked yeah. to get him out of the film. Yeah. Like, this film doesn't want him there. No. But because we know what the story is, his introduction seems weirdly brushed off. Yeah. And as a result, it becomes less about him and it's trying to be less about Aurora and more about Aurora and it's 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 odd, it's odd isn't it? There was points in this film where I was 
I was constantly in the second half of this film checking the time and checking how much was left around on the film. And that wasn't because, like, I was thinking, oh, God, I just want this to be over. It's like, I have no idea where I'm at in this story. Yeah. And the only way I can develop a mental framework of how far I am through anything resembling an act structure, so to speak, is by checking how long is left. Yeah. Because we could be anywhere in the middle of anything right now. I, I, I completely buy an hour and a bit in had lost all sense of what story they were attempting to tell and where we were in it well it, because it invites that and it's it, it basically it did not succeed in overcoming the main problem of this project which is here is a story but we want to tell this other story while we tell that story how do we bury that story to tell ours or how do we incorporate that story to tell ours and it just sort of didn't yeah because i mean like it makes you sort of i suppose realize one of the benefits of the way they approached alice and just had it be a weird pseudo-sequel that does the same thing. Now, obviously, that didn't work out in Alice. It was telling its own story just really badly, but at least it wasn't telling a story that was constantly undermined by another story crashing in into the periphery of it. That's it. There you go. Exactly. And it's it's such a weird one, and... And it's, it, it's interesting how the Disney remakes have sort of pivoted away from what Alice and Maleficent are since Maleficent. You know, it's actually, having seen Maleficent, it's giving me more of an insight on how that happened. Because yeah. here is ostensibly a successful version of what they were trying to do yeah. that feels like the most successful they were ever likely to be. Yeah. Like, who wants Captain Hook's story or whatever? Like, but that is like... 60% still Peter Pan's yeah, story. Exactly. You know? What it's like is that Linda Wolverton was trying to write the Maleficent story and make her this this great, towering, really impressive character. Yeah. And meanwhile, Disney were like, great, and that can be our live-action reimagining of Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. And with those two things, like, the teeth don't fit. It's two different films. Yeah. Made for two different purposes. Being made at the same time in the same film. And yeah. crashing into each other. So... I don't think we're going to feel totally comfortable until we've sort of dealt with the first half and how that was firstly the much more successful yeah. bit, more entertaining as well. Yes. And then there was that thing in the middle of it that was like really big, really big. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's the thing. Like the first half of this film, it's a good point to really start digging into it because all of the successes of this film yeah. are conceptual. Yeah. It's all about its ideas and what it's trying to do yeah and those are most apparent in the first half of this film particularly in the prologue sections where we just have the backstory of maleficent yeah. that leads up to her yeah coming was, into the into the coronation honestly kind of gripping like i was totally on yeah. board with that whole section of the story so if you haven't seen it it's about a young maleficent who starts off as a sort of teenage like just fairy basically yeah. but the, the physically biggest fairy she's sort of human size whereas the rest of them are fairies yeah and that makes her almost like obviously going to be the queen one she's sort of she's like a benevolent nature guardian yes you know she's sort of like a mother earth kind yes. of figure almost but um, with the innocence of not quite knowing that's what she is she's just yeah. playing and having a nice time she's a sort of Peter Pan in a sense in yeah a sense. in a sense yeah yeah in a sense in a sense yeah yeah revisionist revisionist feminist feminist revisionist in a sense yeah yeah and like it sets the that just flies around having f- cheeky fun. Yeah, with the with the magical friends in the world, and like she's a guardian, but there's nothing at stake. Yeah, and it's that's that's her role. Yeah, and it's 
it is an interesting place to start the character of Maleficent from, mm. but it it works. And that opening section where we see that okay, she did have this this kind of. I suppose Romeo and Juliet-ish sort of young love and infatuation with, with Stefan, who obviously, you know, later becomes the king over the human world. King, yeah, who, in that, the only way to know that in the intro is because if you know that the king is called King Stefan in the in the Disney film. Yeah. the um, He just seems to be some sort of like a farmhand boy or something when he shows yeah, up. Yeah, but an ambitious one who was somehow able to rise through. Yes, I wasn't ever really quite clear what he ended up doing in the king's court and being given the opportunity to become the king. No. But, but it was established that he was very ambitious, and so that kind of covers that. Yeah. But a, a very key thing that we've not mentioned is that Maleficent in those days had very big wings. Yes. She yeah. had these great sort of crow wings, didn't she? Yeah, yeah. I wasn't sure exactly. They were sort of brownish, weren't they? I don't, were they? I, I don't I'm, know. I'm going with crow purely because I'm. I, it's the closest thing I think of, and it thematically fits the fact yeah. that she has the crow in the Disney one. But I don't yeah. know if that's what kind of wings they are. I don't know anything about that sort of thing. No. But that picture that, she's got these big black feathery wings. Yeah. They're feathery ones, though. Not yeah, yeah. bat wings. So they kind of look good, but with the dark coloration that befits her. And that, that you, you know, when I first saw her, I thought that she was going to be more villainous than she than she ended up being purely because she was you know designed to resemble Maleficent yes who is you know one of the most evil looking designs ever and is one of the most evil villains yeah. before we get lost in this film's very very revisionist take on Maleficent yes. Maleficent is a very evil character yeah she is literally only there to do evil she's the sort of character who would say like I'm going to do evil yeah. she actually says she evokes all the powers of hell. I think yeah. it's the only time Disney's have said hell in one of their... Yeah. Certainly in their fairy tale films. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I don't know about Black Cauldron. Yeah. But, you know. But it's a very interesting... Like, that contrast makes this a very interesting place yeah. to start for a revision of Maleficent. Yeah. And, I, you know, I suppose it's a good place to start mentioning this. This fits into an interesting tradition that Disney have clearly wanted a part of in the last few years of taking um taking characters like famous characters from fiction famous female characters who are very very villainous very demonized yeah. presented as nothing but a bad wicked woman and yep. reverse engineering into them motivation yeah. and reasons why they would be like that extrapolated from real world social problems mm. that real women face yeah uh and you know kind of trying to i suppose extrapolate an idea that like other people other storytellers have monsterized this woman yes um because society is unforgiving of women and if you know if you knew this woman's real story yeah. you might be a little bit more sympathetic to her and obviously this film is really does that very strongly frozen also does it yeah. um and that was one that kind of almost didn't do that by explicit design from the start of the project. It's mm. just where they ended up yeah. developing yeah. it as they went through with it. Yeah, it's like, right. that was a case where they kind of learned that lesson yeah. as they went through it. It's like I almost, I feel as if I've heard a story where it was at the point where they delivered the song Let It Go. That song yeah. like, oh wait, she's the heroine. Yeah, they've also done, uh, I don't know if you saw Oz the Great and Powerful. I didn't. Uh, it's not great, um, or powerful. No. But it, it also does a take like that right. on the Wicked Witch of the West. Oh, does it? Uh, to a certain degree. Uh, I mean, it's not its not the main thrust of the film. No. But 
it's in there. Right. It's in there. It presents us with a sympathetic reason why the Wicked Witch of the West becomes the Wicked Witch they of the West. They can't get over the fact that they didn't have the rights to Wicked. Absolutely. They? That's the point I was coming to. <laughs> Disney clearly, really, really wished that yeah. they had been the ones who came up with Wicked. Do you wonder if they like just like bid for it and failed or something? I don't know. I don't know, and like we've said, it feels like this tremendous sore spot for them. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, is it Stephen Schwartz who did yes. Wicked? And like, he's someone who's been in and out of the Disney yeah. fold. Didn't at he times. do the lyrics for Hunchback? He did, yeah, he did. It must really rankle with them that yeah. that was not a concept that was brought to them. And they've been trying so hard to make Wicked since then, yeah. right down to the point of hiring. Idina Menzel from Wicked. Yes, which now that we look at all these other things that they made, yeah. seems like a spite hire. <laughs> I mean, they were right to do it. It yeah. was the correct pick, but like, as another piece in the puzzle, it's yeah. like, right, well, we're going to hire her. We're going to do this film. We're going to do that film. We're going to hire her and have her sing our own off-brand yeah. version of Defying Gravity. I almost wonder if we're going to find out that there was this thing where like, they they did bid for it and it was going to happen, and then Stephen Schwartz turned them down at the last minute, and so they just dedicated the next <laughs> five years of their lives to just annoying him or something. I don't know. Yeah, I, it's, it's hard to know, but this is clearly the ghost of something that is yeah. haunting them and fixate. You know, they they have become they have become the, the paranoid obsessed king. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like trying and the to. The thing is, and meanwhile, yeah, meanwhile we've been wanting Disney's film version of Wicked this whole time. Like you saw that like, like that well-produced animatic that uh, that an animator made of Defying Gravity. Oh no, I haven't film. seen that. Oh, but... you got to check it out. It's good. Okay, right, yeah. But I mean, from that perspective, this fixation of theirs is is fascinating and kind of funny. Yeah. But in broader terms though, I suppose you can give them the benefit of the doubt and just say that, you know, even leaving aside, you know, like really obvious markers like Kyrie and Edina Menzel, etc., that maybe they just saw Wicked and thought, yeah, you know what, that's a culturally powerful note that we can play with. And not just that, it it was extremely zeitgeisty, and it's kind of up to Disney to follow that in a sense. Yeah. Um, They had to make Frozen the way it was because of when they made it, and so on. But at the same time, it basically Wicked may have beat them to the punch, but it was always the way things had to go. Yeah. Um, If you're if you're still writing fairy tales and you've done the the bell. Yeah. You've reinvented the heroine. Yeah. Now you've got to reinvent the villainess. Um, Yeah, yeah. Or I I suppose it's just bringing it's bringing gender politics in Disney up to the current state of the art, I suppose. Because, you know, we've had all of the years of women in Disney being passive waifish types who are not really the agents of their own storylines yeah. who are kind of who kind of end up as as pawns in the power games that men that the male characters yeah. play it's almost as if they sleep through their own story isn't it yeah almost <laughs> um and then you know obviously we had the updated version of that in the late 80s and 90s yeah. and so forth where it was more that kind of girl power kind of um you know, girls can do it just as well as boys. You know, like look, this girl's in the one in this one fight scene, and yeah. she runs away. And like at this point, she very dramatically says, "No, I won't do that," yeah. or or that kind of thing. This girl's established that her superpower is learning how to pole vault just by looking at someone else pole vault. 
but then it's never used again. <laughs> but you know, that was yes, that was the state of the art in, in in kind of like mainstream filmmaking gender yeah, discourse I mean, we, of that time. We make fun now, but like, yeah, those characters were genuinely. Now they're kind of of the time, but but then you might be nitpicking if you particularly criticize them because they were good. Yeah, and they were important steps. Yeah, if you look at the pantheon of princesses, it kind of did go from Sleeping Beauty more or less to the Disney Renaissance. I'm struggling to think of anything in between. Yeah, I mean... I mean, I guess I we... have to look up exactly when Sleeping Beauty was, because it's something we need to know for this. Yeah, no, Sleeping Beauty was 59. Oh, really? So, oh, wow. Cinderella was the comeback film for, for princesses after the war. Yes. And then Sleeping Beauty was presumably Disney himself's last princess film. I always forget that Sleeping Beauty is that late. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I always think of it as being older because it has such a deliberately old aesthetic to it. The yes. tapestry style. But what it does... Yes. But what it does have is a quite good prince... Yeah. For saying. You yeah. Know, he's not that great or anything. He's not much of a character, but he's quite well done. He's well drawn, finally. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's not like the Snow White prince who they try and keep out of the frame for as long as possible. Yeah. Because they literally don't know how to draw, draw a man. <laughs> um, it has the first of Disney's sort of triumvirate of good horses. <laughs> if you include the Beauty and the Beast horse. Yeah, he's, he's a good horse. Good. Yeah. He's quite good. He's no Maximus. No. And he's not even uh, the one in Sleeping Beauty who, if you remember... is he's a sass horse. He's a sass horse and, and really the, the prototype for Maximus. Yeah. And of course it has, again, the thing you forget even between viewings of it, but that has to be focused on is the fact that it has these three fairies in it. Yeah, yeah. As the main characters who here... Oh yeah, I was saying this before. When the trailers came out for this version yeah. and they were like, check it out, Maleficent, right, who is not from Sleeping Beauty. Beauty. She's from Disney's Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. So that indicates that we're doing live action Disney's Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. But then they bring in the three fairies. Yeah. And I found out, not from a trailer, but like on IMDb, that they were not only changing the look of them, but changing their names. Yes, that was weird. That confused me greatly. And now I know why. It's because the film is keen to establish that it is not pointing a live action camera at Disney's Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. It is a totally new story in yeah. which the prince doesn't matter. Maleficent is a completely different character. She is present at different times than she is in the Disney film. The dragon isn't her. Yeah. And so on. There are all these changes. But because it leans so heavily on no, it is. It's exactly the Disney Sleeping Beauty, but here's the secret reason why we get to that exact same scene. Yeah. In the first half, that's why there's this big clash. And like halfway, probably like two thirds into the film is where I go, oh, wait, what? What is this now? Yeah. Are we in Sleeping Beauty or are we not in Sleeping Beauty? Yeah. And we're not. N no, but we're we, not. we are though at the yeah. same time. So that was so weird when like in the first part, Everything else, the, the invention of these three fairies who turn into human women to look after her in a cottage, which I don't remember being from the fairy tale. Maybe it is, and I'm just misremembering, but yeah. they were doing the Disney version of it anyway. Yeah. And to the point of, like, weird little nods to it, like when she presents the sunken cake. Yeah. That, that is the focus of one of the more entertaining scenes in, like, the older Disney pantheon. Like, that, the bit where they're arguing about how to make the dress and the cake is just fantastic. <laughs> yes, yeah. They, they skipped over that and did a little bit of, like, sort of merrymaking with the three of them being rivals to each other, but yeah. not really. We were talking about the evolution of the Disney heroine, I suppose. I mean, we like... 
I guess Sleeping Beauty, uh, Aurora herself, doesn't really fit into that very well because she's one of the most passive characters in all of fiction. But would you count, though, you know, the three fairy uh, guardian types as being examples of that evolution? Yeah. Yeah. If they hadn't hadn't been as prominent as they were in the film, then no. But they were. They were the main characters in that film. Yeah. And that's what's so easy to forget because you think of Aurora because she's in the princess line or you think of Maleficent because she's such a such a grand iconic figure. villain yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah no those three fairies are absolutely the focus of ev- nearly every scene in the whole film and they're a more interesting group of women yeah. than they were dealing with in the 40s yeah absolutely and so they they get to because of their presence it's kind of all right that Aurora herself is not a very yeah not much of a character she just sort of goes around singing to herself like a princess does and yeah she's there's something in her design and in her voice that makes me think of her as more in charge than Snow White for instance but not really there's no real substance well, she's kind of just a cipher really she's not a character no into any great degree but but yeah, you know, I, I would count those fairies as... Because you were asking if there was any connective tissue between the old-style characters yeah. and the Renaissance characters. Well, it's just purely, yeah, that. Um, and also how we jump from there to the Renaissance. Because in the meantime, you had, you know, Oliver and company. And yeah. It was, it was, it, they were stepping away from their thing. And then, bang, we're on, like, Ariel yeah. and then Belle. I suppose you had supporting female characters. Um, yeah. But... Yeah, the, the the Renaissance was when they really started jumping with both feet back into, like, female-led yeah. fantasies. But I think the, the point I was going to yes. ultimately get back to was the fact that I do not uh, hold every artist responsible for being right there on the evolution of the cultural zeitgeist. Sure. Like, if you're an individual artist, you can make a piece of work that's right in the cultural moment you can make something that's ahead of its time or you can make something that's old-fashioned or you know antiquated in terms of the cultural views it's your vision you can do what you want if you are disney it's different because you are a company you are an organization who are kind of there and your modus operandi is we are the we are the metronome of culture yeah when you are some, when you're an entity like that, then I start considering it to be your artistic and, in a sense, moral responsibility to keep pace with and reflect what is going on in culture. If you want, if you want to dominate culture to the degree that you do, you have to reflect culture back in yep. a positive, forward-thinking way. Yep. And to be fair to Disney, I think that's a responsibility they do take seriously yes even though they misstep sometimes they misstep sometimes but i'm struggling to think of a time where in the last few years they disastrously misstep no at least in their animated line you know maybe it may be here and there in some other yeah. stuff they might happen to produce but but not in terms of like this was a big flagship thing for disney yeah. and they just they just called it completely wrong and they were completely out of touch with the cultural yeah. zeitgeist and I think the reason that they keep coming back to this wicked template of, you know, deconstructing how these monsterized female characters may have in fact been wronged by society is because they're trying to reflect the modern understanding of systemic oppression of, of women, which is not something that was ever in anything that they previously did right up to and including the 90s uh, renaissance stuff the sensibility behind that is kind of like we're post-oppression now you know what i mean yeah it's like girl power like girls can do whatever boys can do in that sense and that that is a positive message but now they're kind of trying to take it and develop it into that idea that we have a lot now where it's like there are gastons you can't push into the mud absolutely yeah 
And, the, you know, it's not that you shouldn't try to. Yeah. It's, it's not that it's the role of women to be forever subjugated by an unfair society <laughs> and the, that that's the only reality that we can deal with and that we have to, you know, like, rub your face in it. That'd be a bleak animated canon, wouldn't it? Well, yeah. But they are trying to acknowledge that, you know what, girls can do anything that boys can do, but it'll be harder for women because there's a lot of bad cultural baggage that's weighing them down around the ankles. And Maleficent, mm. on paper, is a really good approach at trying to tell that kind of story much more successful than like alice for example which was just you know and we talked about that refer to our previous work for our deconstruction of why that didn't pan out but the way that maleficent approaches it is it's it's strong it's basically a very very easily readable story of you know, it's a challenging theme. It's a it's a theme that adults have difficulty talking yeah. about. It's a metaphor that it's still rooted in fairy tale. It's still rooted in the broad appeal of the Sleeping Beauty story they're trying to use. But it's also very direct. So that I think even a kid could get it about this is a story of a woman who, through no fault of her own really at all, yeah. is made to be, as I said before a pawn in the power games of men. And the word men is used in Maleficent to mean mankind, the human world, but the other meaning of men as well in this context. And the way in which this is brought across, and I suppose this is really the, the kind of, one of the most culturally important scenes in this, is she is like assaulted and mutilated really um she has her lustrous wings clipped like cut off completely yeah and it's and this is a very fairy taley concept yeah the idea of cutting off someone's wings and for those wings to essentially still be able to work but they're not yours anymore yeah but it's very effective that whole bit is viscerally i mean angelina jolie really has a lot of credit to take from that from her reaction to when she wakes up it was amazing realize i mean i was getting i was i was i was pretty taken aback by that moment because it's like wow i'm feeling a lot of power radiating out of this um that i wasn't expecting a lesser production would just give you the information yeah this gave you the visceral reaction to what had happened yeah the the sense of i mean violation to a large large degree the way that it works if you haven't seen it is that they have this romeo and juliet relationship when they're young teenagers basically he's from the human world she's from the fairy world and they're kind of not at war but they're at odds they're not yeah then the king just randomly one day shows up when she is an adult and goes like not not the not the Stephen King not the king we're going to end up with the previous king yeah yeah and he's a horrible old man and he's like oh, I'm going to randomly take over the fairy world she fights back and now there is this war divide between yeah. them and basically he issues this edict which is like whoever can you know essentially bring me the head of maleficent yeah gets to be the king because he was injured in this conflict and is he knows he's dying dying so our Stefan, who at this point is some sort of aid to the king, goes back to the forest and you think it's in the capacity of warning her about this or in yeah. some way helping out. Because and these are two characters who were established as having ostensibly been in love. And, and I should have said this, in fact, this is the reason to recap it at all, they share... True love's kiss. Yeah, it's yeah. not love's first kiss in this. It's yeah. true love's kiss. Yeah. To establish that theme. And when they did that, I knew what was coming. I didn't know all of what was coming. I couldn't possibly have guessed. Yeah. But I was like, ah, this is where Maleficent is introduced to the concept of true love's kiss. Yeah. And it's going to be a slightly different take on why she put it in the curse. And then, so he comes back, they reconnect, he spends time with her. It looks like the romance is back. Yeah. 
And then he slips something. He drugs her. Content warning, guys. Um, yeah. Yeah. There is. This is a rabbit hole they decide to go down mm, in yeah. this film. He drugs her. And while she's asleep, he assaults her. Yeah. He cuts away those wings. Well, he's, he's he, going to kill her. He has that sort of Snow White hunter moment. moment. Yeah. He has the dagger at the ready and then he can't do it. Yeah. And so instead he, he cuts off her wings, which in, in itself works as a metaphor. It's what she's been experiencing her freedom and fritting around with and yeah. being the character she was. And he takes them. And she wakes up in this haze. Yeah. And it takes her a few moments to like for it to set in. Yeah. Oh, it's awful. It's really, in a really way where horrible. It's good filmmaking. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I was very impressed with yeah. that section of the film. Um and you know, the writer, Angelina Jolie, they're very, very yeah. explicit that yeah. yes, that's an intentional metaphor. Yeah. Yes, that's something that they wanted to tackle head on. In a Disney film. Mm. In a Disney film, and it's and it doesn't shy away it. It, that's why I say it's it's a very carefully played moment because it it isn't it, it isn't the real world thing. Yeah. But yeah. it reads so clearly as it. Yeah. To a degree that a child can get it without it being inappropriate for them. Yeah. This is the most this is I think the most successful part of the whole film. Yeah. Because it's almost like it's just as good as some of the fairy tales that we have that are metaphors for stuff like Yeah. I mean, it's better because it's you know it's it's about something now. Yeah. You know, you know, it, it fits our sensibilities now. But in terms of the way that the metaphor is constructed, it's absolutely in the language of fairy tale. Yes, any child can safely watch it, but it sets them up with this as they grow older. Here's a reference point for this issue. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's something Disney have been quite good at recently. Yeah. Um, I say, I, I mean, I, Disney, I mean, as a company more than a studio, uh, because, you know, it kind of cuts across a lot of their work they've been outputting across various different channels. They're doing quite a lot of good work in terms of giving kids early and very um, kind of like accessible, but also comprehensive primers on some complex issues. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I have in a previous, in previous recordings pointed to stuff like Zootopia of course, yeah. and Inside Out yeah. as these are good first guides to topics that are very complex that, like I said, even adults have difficulty yeah, yeah. discussing even-handedly. I think we said in the Frozen episodes that, like, the next generation will have a better handle on this stuff than us. Yeah. Firstly, simply because it's all sort of coming into view, but secondly, yeah. because of these films giving them this yeah. genuinely good start. That's the thing. I don't expect today's eight-year-olds to be reading all the, the news that's going on at the minute or whatever and understand the full implications yeah. of what that means for them as, as growing people. Yeah. But they can watch Zootopia and they can yeah. watch Inside Out. And for better or worse, they can watch Maleficent and at least take this part out of it yeah. and, and see it as like, here is an explanation of... A very very sensitive real world issue yeah. handled entirely through very fitting metaphor but it works yeah. it works it does and it's very strong and it's it's kind of why the second half of the film is so disappointing yeah it absolutely it is. never reaches this height again goodness me no not at all if we are going with this metaphor then i suppose it's you have to start thinking a little bit more deeply into why we have the... Why does the king get to keep this thing in a jar? Why is it still alive, or should it be still alive? The ease with which she gets it back. I suppose it's giving a message that what he took from her in that moment of yeah. assault, it's not his yeah. to take. Yeah. And that 
it's not like him taking it is forever. Yeah. That that it can be reclaimed. It's good, isn't it? That's that side yeah. of this film is good. Um and like I said, it does set up nicely, like I say, this idea that this is a woman who has been made an object in the power struggles of men. Mm-hmm. And initially she reacts to that by perpetuating the cycle. She goes dark and she takes her anger out on another female character yes she and you know and and this is this is something that happens a lot in fairy tale i suppose like this idea of like the best revenge on a man is to attack their woman in some sense um and she becomes part of that vicious cycle yeah and so as much as the cursing of the baby is a kind of you know it's played with a certain yas queeniness but it's also you also realize that this is this is not the feminist thing to do well no and that <laughs> it's well handled it is well handled because yeah. the story then is supposed to become about her gradual realization of what she's done in that moment and how yeah it's time to take it back. See, it all works on paper, doesn't it? It's... On paper, yeah. Yeah. This is what I've said. This is conceptually a very fascinating film. Mm. It has many, many more good ideas than Alice, than, you know, than really either Alice. Um, and frankly, than most of their live-action remakes. This is a film that, I mean, frankly, it feels more timely now than when it came out. It, yes. It's possessed of real... A real sense of creative imperative yeah. on paper. It's you look at these ideas and how they are intended to play out within the story, and you feel like this is. I see why this is a film that might need to be made. Yes, I can see why an artist, not just a bean counter, would come at yeah, this. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, and think like you know what? There's there's a genuine artistic and cultural gain to be had from revisiting the story of Sleeping Beauty in this manner. Definitely. And far more far more than there ever would have been for Alice. That yeah. idea, which for some reason seems to have been her, fully her idea unprompted to make yeah. a feminist Alice who goes off to become... Yeah. That is not a very strong idea, but this is. Yeah, it it's is. It's almost like this is the one that, from uh, Linda Wolverton's perspective, you know... Maybe she had this idea first, but you can't act on it. It's Maleficent, a Disney character. Whereas Alice in Wonderland has yeah. to be out of copyright. Anyone can do that. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's basically this is the correct next film to work on after yeah. she's landed Alice and got that done. And by the way, with Alice became there's there's some accolade that she gained from that. Like she was the um, the only ever sole female writer. On, on a, a bi- film on that a billion dollar a billion. movie, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. that was a huge smash. She can do anything she wants at Disney now. Yeah, here it is, Maleficent. Great yeah. idea. It's 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 a great idea. It's almost exactly right until you watch the second half of the film. Yeah, it's a real shame mm. to to watch the film start to disintegrate. It is. Um, and to me, this is a this. I I feel as though one of the big things about this is this is a tricky story. It's really difficult, like, because of the heady themes we were just talking about, because of the fact that you're trying to recontextualize one of your, you know, most kind of, you know, black on the black and white binary scale villains. And you're trying to do that at the same time as working in elements of Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. And clearly this was a challenge that was way beyond a first time director. Is it a first time director? It is. The guy, Robert Stromberg. How do you know that, John? He is a, um, 
a, a very, very, very successful production designer. Oh. Like, for years and years, he's worked on huge, huge... I mean, like, you know, like, well, pro- probably the most relevant bit of experience was he was the production designer on Alice in Wonderland. Oh. But he's worked on countless huge, yeah. huge projects. I mean, he worked on Avatar, for God's sake. Oh, you know, wow, like, right. so, you know, everything from the biggest movie of all time downwards. You know, the, yeah. this is a guy who's got a lot of industry experience, but he's a first-time director, and... Um, well, he did a good enough job for that, but uh, this was a big, heady thing to give to a first-time director. It is, and and it shows because he, you know, like a lot of people who, who move from production design or costume design into directing, they know how to make the film look um, visually interesting. You know, not to say that everything about this film clicks visually but it's fine but it's mostly fine it doesn't have any of the grotesque excesses of like the alice movie no absolutely um and i did like the way a lot of it looked there was a lot of shots of the fairy world that yeah great i didn't really like the cgi pixies oh they were awful awful looking um, no, that was strange. I was very glad that it turned out that they were going to turn them just human. It was so, it was a genuine moment of yeah. great relief. Yeah, where it's like, oh my god, she's just turned back into normal Imelda Storm. Yeah, now it's well, like, she was good though. Yes, I, I thought there was unfortunately that caused a clash between like how good she was. Yeah, and the crap scenes she was in. Yeah, the fact that they were just being knockabout three stooge fairies. Yeah. But she was acting. <laughs> but she's just really good. She's just really good. Um, yeah. And would have, you know, like when I saw her on paper, oh, Imelda Staunton is going to be one of them. It's like, perfect. Yeah. Couldn't, couldn't oh, be yeah. better. Yeah. Um, but she, her CGI form looks just nauseating. Yeah. And it was like, a, like I said, it was like a knot in my chest yeah. unclenched because it's, for that section where they a, turned into normal people. Exactly. Because it's an almost photorealistic representation of her and the other two. Yeah. But they Juno don't... Temple and Leslie Manville, I think. Okay. Just to, so I'm not... No, I don't them. know much about them. I've seen... Me either. I've seen... I've seen the older one in something before, and I can't mm-hmm. even remember what. But but let's so let's focus on Imelda Staunton. That is not the same performance. That's not an Imelda Staunton performance. Yeah. When it's a CG pixie, pixie, it's her face. Yeah. But it's acting like a CG pixie. And yeah. It's very odd. Yes, and it is. The yeah. <laughs> you got a shudder of the Alice's yes. about that, didn't you? Yes. Um. And so yeah, you know, like, like that's why I say not everything he does visually works, especially since they're introduced. So quickly after the big horrific scene, yeah, that they are they they sort of strike you as like well hunchback gargoyles or something, yeah. don't they? Yeah, yeah. They represent the twist in tone. Yes, from something that was working and had a direction and then was moving in a direction. Yeah, to something that's just like and now this. <laughs> but the thing that's interesting is that like um. I was reading a little bit about this movie, just, you know, researching it, and yeah. clearly they realised that that handing it to Robert Stromberg as a first-term director was maybe a bit much to ask of him, and this is a film that had a lot of reshoots oh. and was cut up quite a bit. Oh. But all of that seemed to have come at the beginning. Really? The opening parts, and from what, from what I can tell... The reshoots were done with the heavy assistance of the director John Lee Hancock, who did a number of films, but Saving Mr. Banks. Um, So a much more established director, basically. And it seems like it was that opening that they felt was not coming off right. There was apparently originally a longer opening. Maleficent had 
parent characters, oh, like gosh. a king and queen of the fairy kingdom, right. sort of played by uh, Miranda Richardson and Peter Capaldi, <laughs> who filmed things, I apparently. I would like to see that. Um, I'm not saying it needs to be in the film, but I'd like to see it now it's been filmed. Yeah, but that was apparently all sliced and diced up. Yeah. But but uh, but the producer, I read a quote from him, just you know, just on the Wikipedia yeah. page, saying that like that it, you know he was quite frank about the fact that yeah, it was the opening that you know he needed a bit of extra help with. But you know the the, the remaining seventy five minutes is a lot of fun. But it's like oh for me, I look at the film that's finished. It's like. Okay, if you got John Lee Hancock to come and help read Tool, the yeah. opening, and then the rest of it is Robert Stromberg, yeah. why didn't you just get John Lee Hancock to direct this whole film? Yeah, because now I'm looking at it as a film with two directors. Yeah. And I liked the the one film and then didn't so much like the other film. Yeah, right? It was fine. Again, I never was seething about anything in it, but yeah, it's clear there is a stronger film and a weaker film. Yeah. Hmm. And... I mean, may- maybe part of that problem is because of the fact that now we have two halves that don't mesh. And, may- you know, yeah. maybe if we'd seen the Stromberg cut from start to yeah. finish, it- some of it might have felt less jarring. Possibly. But we probably wouldn't have responded to it. Maybe not. Particularly positively. Maybe not. It, yeah, it makes you wonder how much of what we think of as good was simply an invention of this new director. Yeah, and might not have been anything to do with the story at all, and is a stronger story, that metaphor might not have been there. Maybe it wasn't. Or maybe it was done worse. Maybe it was done badly. I mean, that would have been... Oh, yeah. That scene would That have would been... explain why it was done. Could be. It could be. If that, if, yeah, if that wasn't working and they screwed it up, that would need redoing. But also, like I said, the fact that there's whole extra characters... Of you know yeah. played by actors of yeah. that caliber yeah. suggests that maybe that sequence was like half an hour before, yeah. and that would have been way too long. Yeah. That would have been ages before you actually get to yeah. any of the Sleeping Beauty-ish parts yeah, or the Maleficenty would... parts. Yeah. So clearly, what I can appreciate that they were probably right that that needed work. Yeah. But then I say that you needed to rework all of it because as yeah. as it plays out, everything after the um. The coronation scene, and frankly, I mean, it's not like everything up to that point is is dead perfect. Because Maleficent, as a character, she does turn on a sixpence, doesn't she? As much as we say that we like this idea of contextualizing her backstory yeah. as like she's this wronged woman, that's why she becomes the villain yeah. that she becomes. But she goes from really sympathetically wronged victim yeah. to just cackling, baby cursing Disney villain in one scene. One scene. She goes from naught to Maleficent. <laughs> like, in 0.25 seconds. Like, and back again. And the, back that again. That turn is yeah. quite fast as well. If you've not seen the movie, to explain a little bit about what happens after the coronation scene yeah. is bloody difficult. Yeah. It's, it's just... It, it's hard to know. It is. Because... We should try. Well, let's try. Let's try, because I want to try and puzzle this out. Right, so... After she comes in and like curses the baby yeah like and she puts the love's first kiss caveat in the in the animated version the yeah the final fairy's gift is to try her best to reverse or dampen the curse yeah that's, that's right i almost feel like in this film does maleficent not interrupt the last fairy just before she does her gift yeah and then that comes to nothing yeah yeah that last fairy never does anything there's I mean, a, in there's the a little film. microcosm of the way this film connects <laughs> with Sleeping Beauty, isn't it? But yeah, like, anyway. so she adds the love's first kiss thing as a 
kind of like as an ironic joke because yes. you know she felt so betrayed rightfully so yeah. betrayed by this guy who said that he loved her that she doesn't believe that there is any such thing as god i never even uh, put true love's together kiss. how well that connects into the, the metaphor yeah that's great yeah it does it again on paper yeah brilliant <laughs> okay but um so then aurora gets taken off into the woods to be looked after by these three idiots flopsy mopsy and cottontail yep don't say that because now you're making me think of the peter rabbit trailer <laughs> oh i'm terribly sorry and oh, that- no. oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's another three that's hour the, podcast oh, god that's <laughs> the only film that could possibly be worse than tim burton <laughs> let's do it let's do it let's never <laughs> um Anyway, yeah, anyway, so yeah, they get he she gets taken off to the idiot cottage, and <laughs> and and then like, all right. So again, you seem like you remember the original Sleeping Beauty better than I do. Okay. So they're in this cottage. Yep. And Maleficent erects this giant wall of thorns, stopping the men from getting into the forest kingdom. Yeah. In this, it's a sort of a barrier between fairyland and normal land, right? Yeah, but. Like, but so she's Aurora is being looked after behind this thorn wall. Well, she no, I think she's in the. She must be on the human side because those soldiers see her at one point. Do you remember? She goes up to the thorn wall and the soldiers go, "Oh, is that Maleficent? Oh no, it's all right. It's just someone, and it's Aurora." But I thought that like, but but Aurora had like free access to the um, know, to the forest. Yeah, I have no idea how that happened. Which side of the wall I was don't she know. on? I know at one point she was on the same side of the wall as some human soldiers. But I assumed that they'd got past the wall. Oh, well, maybe they did. But why? They seem to have a camp there or something. They seem to just be there. They didn't seem to be like, hooray, we got through the wall. Yeah. Whatever. But if she's on the forest side of the wall, why would King Stefan sequester his daughter in enemy territory? Yeah. So I don't think he has. I think they, so. She must be on the human side of the wall. But then why can she just go and uh, into the forest? That that this is what I think is happening. I think she's on the human side of the wall. Hence the fairies disguising themselves as humans because they're the good. The, the king likes those fairies. Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah. This film establishes he is massively at war with all fairies. Yeah. Um. But um. They really should have explained that. Yeah. Maybe. So, so they turn into humans for some reason. They're welcome in this kingdom. So I don't know why. Yeah. But, and they must be on the human side. And then, yeah, somehow... Uh, yeah, I don't know how. Aurora can just go... We know she can... I don't know. Because I just realised that if she was on the human side... No, she wouldn't know... She wouldn't know she was in any way connected to the king. Because part of the plot is to make sure she doesn't know who she is. That's why the fairies have to turn human. At least it is in the anime. Yeah, version, okay, I think yeah. It is in this. That makes sense. So... Here's the problem. See, this is the stuff that, in trying to avoid doing Sleeping Beauty that much and trying to focus on Maleficent, you miss... The you... parts that make Sleeping Beauty make sense. Yeah, because... Yeah. because Okay, so in the animated Sleeping Beauty, broadly, it's about the fact she's going to prick a finger on a spinning wheel and all of that. But in the details, which once you've had that, you can get down to the details, it's we're turning into peasant women so that she never learns of her heritage, so that... I don't know why that would stop her from pricking her finger, but it kind of makes sense in that film. Whereas yeah. in this one, it's all breezed over and I guess the assumption that you know the story. But but you can't just do that. If you're like yeah. half... If you're telling 60% of a story, you can't just assume that the audience is going to fill the rest of it in. Either do it... I mean, frankly, I'm loath to say this. Do it like Alice in Wonderland did it, <laughs> where... You make it where you you make it clear that the old story is the old story, yeah. and like yeah, you know, it's not really that important. But here, 
the story of Sleeping Beauty is that important because it's like at least 45% of the film. We, I mean, we might have just missed something, you know? It might turn out that it's, it's, that it is established, but... I... If it is established, it's established in a way that, you know, you have to read the small print. We didn't watch it together. We weren't talking at that point. We watched it separately on different days. We both missed it. Yeah, that says something, I think. Yeah. And then, okay, so whatever. She's in Idiot Cottage with yep. idiots. And and then Maleficent mm. spends the next 10, 15 minutes of her film lurking in the bushes. Mm, that's weird. Watching Sleeping Beauty happen. <laughs> yeah, watching the film Sleeping Beauty. And what's she doing? Yeah, this is the point at which it really first breaks apart from the old version because immediately upon... I don't remember this, but in Sleeping Beauty, the baby is delivered off to the... They're going to be the three humans. And then we cut to her just before her 16th birthday. And, like, the first thing we see is that comedy sequence of making the cake, making the dress, because it's for her birthday. This is her birthday preparation. And they get into such a fight that they go against their own rule, they get the wands out, they start shooting wands, and the magic goes up the chimney, and Maleficent's crow sees it. Yeah. And that is how Maleficent finds out where she is. Whereas in this version, the day the baby is taken into the house, the crow is there. She knows from day one. So that's where we get the the, the first sort of, you know, uh, Star Trek reboots (laughs) moment where it diverges into the new reality. And, um... That, that's where that break is. So yeah, in this version, Maleficent always knows, but still needs to not act upon it until she's old enough to be played by whatever her name is. Elle Fanning. Elle Fanning. So she has to just be there watching, and it doesn't justify itself, really. What I am what I couldn't work out is, what is Maleficent doing? Yeah. There? Just, I don't know. The, the, uh, if I was to guess, I would say just obsessing over it. But that's all I can give you. There's no... It's not... But, like, she seems to take some kind of interest in Mm. the baby. Mm. Almost straight away. And so, like... You don't think it's meant to be... No. At what point in the proceedings do we have that scene where the little girl version of her gives her a cuddle? Because at that point, after that, you can say, okay, we established... A sort of begrudging connection that Maleficent may feel from that moment. But but that's like years later. Yeah, she like, was there when the baby was taken into the house. Maleficent yeah. turned up that day and looked in the window. And it seems like she's been there every day. Yeah. <laughs> like literally just every day Maleficent yeah. wakes up and it's like, I'm off to stalk that baby again. Yeah, and, and she calls her on it. When, when it is Elle Fanning for the first time, yeah. she goes like, I know who you are. You've been watching over me all my whole life. And she has to be like, yeah. <laughs> But why was she doing... I get that after a certain yeah. point. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm weirdly taken with this child. I'm yeah, feeling yeah, yeah. maternal feelings towards her. And that wasn't part of my plan. Yeah, which I, is what the story is aiming to do then. But why was she there putting herself in the position in the first place? Mm. Why would she just be there stalking this baby? Yeah. Why for, did she go there? For like 16 years. Yeah. I suppose if we wanted to be fans, if we imagine we were fans of this and we wanted to justify it, a way to like just draw out of what is in the film our own idea would be to say that like that crow seemed to be trying to set her on the straight and narrow all the time. So perhaps he was talking her into like into it. But that's not in the film. No, it's not in the film. It's not in the film. Like for me, this is this is one of the big problems of the film. I mean, on a broad level, it's the fact that. Like we say, after this point, this film just takes this weird detour off into this is no longer a revisionist movie in which Maleficent is the main character of what is essentially an original piece of storytelling, albeit one that kind of like 
touches upon certain base points from Sleeping Beauty yeah. at various points. This is now the story of Sleeping Beauty, the Disney Sleeping Beauty, yep. just playing out, except all of the characters of Sleeping Beauty are minimized. Yeah. Because the main character is still meant to be Maleficent. So Maleficent is put center stage in a story that she doesn't have any role in. No, she's just the end boss. They go back to her castle and that... And beer. Yeah. So what their solution is, is like, well, what if Maleficent was literally just stood in a bush for those 16 years? Yeah. Watching and do, and like... <laughs> yeah. And it's, at that, that point, it's, it's all like, why would... That's a bizarre way yeah. to kind of like, to, to, to contextualize the actions of this powerful character with so much agency mm. up until this point. It's like, and yeah. She I'm... just fits, she slots into the tone of the of, of their world. You've got the three idiots in the idiot cottage. Yeah. And now she's starting to be a knockabout fool. Yeah. With her crow, you know, they're doing eyebrows at each other and being silly. And like, yeah. Aurora enters her world and her life and, and it all becomes like pie-in-the-face japes. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, that's the other part of this. The lurching tonal issues. Yeah. Like, this is a film that starts out in sort of almost infantile whimsy. Yeah. And then it moves into really harrowing drama. Yeah. And then it, you know, and then it turns into Disney movie. Yeah. Like, the old Disney yeah. movie. Then it turns into knockabout japes. Yeah. And interspersed with the flash with the the, the, the sections back to King Stephen yeah, exactly who is he's like still living in that Game of Thrones world exactly bit. where he's you know he may as well be like Ramsay Bolton or something from Game <laughs> of Thrones and it's like you know just as a as an asterisk here yeah. I just want to dedicate a sidebar to what the hell is Charlotte Copley doing in this film oh wow I found him very watchable I liked him yeah, but, but what's he doing? I was like, Charlotte Copley is—he's an interesting actor. Uh, you've seen District Nine, right? Yes, that's all I know him from. I mean, he's fantastic in oh, District yeah, Nine. He's absolutely great. But that was like his first acting role. Basically, mm. he was—he was basically before that. Like, I think he was just a sort of behind-the-scenes kind of guy that really? who worked with Neil Blomkamp, the director of District Nine, mm. and like Neil Blomkamp was like hey, why don't you be the main character in this film? I was like, oh, I've not really acted before, but sure, I'll go and be in this film. And then he was amazing in it. Yeah. And since then, he's got a lot of work. But in the film since then, I think he's shown his inexperience as an actor much more than he did in his actual debut. Mm. He's very unpolished. And if he's handled right, he can be very good. But if he's not handled right, he is a complete ham sandwich. <laughs> and this is one of those films. Can yeah. you tell me what his accent is? Well, look. <laughs> Obviously, it was attempted Scottish, wasn't it? Yes. And... Look, in a world where I've heard the new Glomgold's attempt at a Scottish accent while standing next to David Tennant, <laughs> I do think that his attempt at Scottish was closer to right, especially since there's that scene where he has an actual Scottish actor, I think, yeah. with him, the one who he kind of, who says, like, well, the men are asleep, and he's yeah. like, well, wake them up then. I, I think that, te like, it, it, it's the accent equivalent of this film. I think technically all the syllables are about right. <laughs> But it has, it, it's like uncanny valley of accents. But that's the thing. That, that's why I had a lot more problem with this than I did with the DuckTales one, where we're, <laughs> where we're talking about a character who is, to all intents and purposes, a fake cartoon 
<laughs> caricature of someone who's trying to act super Scottish. Yeah. Whereas this is meant to be a real person. Yeah. And not just a real person. Maybe the person that we take the most seriously yes. in the entire Definitely. film. And it's not that his accent is not to be taken seriously. It's just all wrong. Yeah, it's just... Yeah. It is Glasgow via Johannesburg. <laughs> and that's not a thing. No. Like... And there's no reason he had to be Scottish. No, I don't know. He doesn't live in a Scotland kingdom. No, he doesn't. No one else is Scottish. No. Well, one person is. But That's I mean, it. the kingdom is not... No. It's not they How to Train Your Dragon, is it's it? It's not How to Train Dragon, and it's not even actual, like, medieval Scotland. Like, they're no. not all... They don't have Scottish accents. I mean, his name's Stefan. Like, you know, yeah. why, why doesn't he do, like, a some kind of Scandinavian accent yeah. or something? like, Or, like, you know, some kind of Central European yeah. accent. Or, frankly... If he's gonna do an accent. Just be South African. I mean, yeah. Like, he has such a strong South African accent that, like, any attempt to paper it over is only going to end in heartbreak. (laughs) Like, and it does here. But he is so off the deep end. I mean, the character is off the deep end, but he's off the deep end into a different film. (laughs) I still found him watchable. I think I like a bit of Ham in this family. Sure, sure. And, like, I'll, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. But it do, he does not aid the problem of this film not feeling cohesive. No, and what he does do is that we are watching a film about Maleficent. She's supposed to be the ham. Yeah. If you've got a competing ham... <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, I guess, though, in the context of this, this is a film in which Maleficent is has some of that taken off her so yes. that she can be a more rounded, humanised character. Yes. So, in that context you want a villain who can fill the void of like oh well who's gonna be our like four course meal villain yeah he needs he needed to be bad enough that a maleficent yeah exactly finds him a bit too yeah, much. Exactly. It's like, he's like whoa steady on guy um and okay in that regard it works and i mean it is it's an interesting way to to take that character it's like to take a character who was like perfectly nice <laughs> in the disney film and render him as like just just awful. Yeah, that's that's one of the Do you remember how great he was in the Disney film? He was just this lovely king. Yeah. He had a funny little fight with another king. Yeah. They both turned out to be friends. Yeah. He was great. And this guy is like this is like the worst human in the world. Yeah. <laughs> um and he and his story doesn't make the sense that Maleficent's story does. No. Even, even where, you know, does Maleficent's story quite perfectly explain why she would curse a baby? Well, it does a lot more than why this guy who was in with the Queen of the Fairies, yeah. like, his life was fine. And yeah. then he was like, ah, wait, I'm going to be evil because a different monarch said so. A different, much less nice, much yeah. less hot monarch. Yeah, who I don't get to kiss. Like, it's- no, I mean, look, no offence to that old bearded guy. I'm sure. I'm sure, like, there's lots... Some, he'll, be, he'll be some people's cup of tea. <laughs> yeah. But I'm gonna say fewer. Fewer people, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the numbers hold that out. I mean, where's his... <laughs> he wasn't married to Brad Pitt, no, was exa- he? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, look, I've not done the research. He might have been. Maybe he was. Yeah. In case I apologise to him and yeah. to Brad Apologies Pitt. Apologies in advance. Yeah. But anyway... Out of the two, let's say the camera loves Angelina more. Yeah. What's, like, what, why does he go so far away from her? Like, to the point that by the end of it, like, I mean, I know that the idea is that he's lost his soul by the end of it, but like, but why does he lose it to that degree? I I didn't see much, see, what I was about to say is that that story would have made more sense if they'd gone into how, more into how his 
heinous act of clipping off her wings yeah. affected him psychologically and yeah. it went worse and worse and worse. But then would that be on the road towards sympathising with, with the assaulter? I mean, but there's a difference between sympathising with and presenting yeah. a, a, a human being whose motivations you can understand. I mean, I, I just wonder if that might be a factor. That might be a reason. Might that have been in the earlier version? Maybe it was, but... Whether that was the concern or not, it makes it does make the story weaker. It does. It, you know, like, if you have a choice between having a character be someone you understand and someone you don't understand, always go for making them someone you can understand. Yeah. That's, and that isn't the same as saying, hey, maybe this guy has a point. Yes. Um, but it's like, they don't have to have a... They don't have to have a point to the audience, but they have to have a point to themselves. Yes. And I don't think he did. No. We never even got a good explanation of what he meant by ambition. Yeah. Yeah, he ended up the king, but we don't know how or why or like... Well, we know how exactly, but we don't know how he got to the point where he had the opportunity. And Yeah. It was all just a bit of a muddle, wasn't it? Yeah, but... Perhaps I, he made a deal with Peter Capaldi at some point. Yeah, exactly. Possible. The, the character previous... No, no Peter Capaldi. The actor yeah. Peter Capaldi. It's like, I will... I'll do this, and in exchange, you will coach me in your Scottish accent. <laughs> but Peter Capaldi tricked him <laughs> and taught him wrong. The trickster god, Peter Capaldi. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, okay, that would have—I I, I suppose it would have taken it a bit f- far away from Sleeping Beauty if they'd included, yeah. included that point. Yeah. But yeah, like, all right. So, end side note on what the hell Charlotte Copley was doing. Um, but. <laughs> Back to what the hell was Maleficent doing? Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it's like I said, she she just ends up on the periphery of a story that doesn't necessarily feel like she's the main character of it anymore. Yeah. Even though the camera is still acting like she's the yeah. main character. And it kind of couldn't it couldn't escape making Aurora the main character, which the previous Disney film did. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> and that's so weird. Like, and it just means that. Maleficent's character arc from that point, it becomes so passive. Yeah. Like, all of the things that then happen to her in terms of, like, taking her from from the point where she is a cackling, baby-cursing Disney villain to, oh, I have the pangs of, like, a maternal instinct awakening in me yeah. to, I'm going to use the self-determining feeling of restorative love in my soul that this feeling of maternal love has given me to regenerate and now I have my wings back and now I'm basically a superhero. Yeah. All of that just feels like it happens because of because she was standing in the periphery of Sleeping Beauty happening. Yeah. And watching it and feeling in just the right way for some reason. Yeah. Um that that all happens to her. So it's it doesn't end up like it doesn't end up taking her story away from her and giving it to some guy. No. But it, it, it doesn't give it really to anybody. It edges that way with the um, with the crow character. I think it was a bit extraneous. Because, yeah, yeah. Because well, he's like he becomes the Jiminy Cricket. He becomes the Jiminy Cricket, but also I think he takes away some of the relationship she ends up having with Aurora. Yeah, I agree. Those bits where they're playing and they're reconnecting. Yeah, Maleficent for some of them is just sort of sitting there haughtily. Yeah, while yeah. while Aurora and the crow play. Yeah. Um. And I see that that was necessary. You have to get to where Maleficent can... You can't have Maleficent throwing mud pies in people's faces. Yeah. So you have to have her 
come about it a different way, but I just don't think you necessarily had to approach the relationship in that way then. Yeah, exactly. It like have to be about silly japes. That's the thing. If you're, if you're, frankly, I feel that if you're reaching a point in your script where you're asking yourself, can I reasonably have Maleficent like have a a, a a giggling mud fight with Sleeping Beauty? Did that happen, or am I making it no, up? No, that, that was a giggling mud fight. Yeah, that literally yeah, happened. Yeah. If you're asking yourself that, maybe you've written the story wrong. Yeah. Because again, the start the the start point and basically the end point on paper yeah. is fine. Yeah, it's that journey that it's like a brave again, isn't it? it yeah. they, they go and have japes in the woods and it with a different version of the character than we had up till then. But even more like <laughs> passive than yeah. than what happened in Brave. Yeah, it's just so and like I said, at that stage the tone is all over the place yeah. and and because the fact. Be, the, it's because of the fact that halfway through the film, the film stops and then starts again as Sleeping Beauty. <laughs> yeah, someone changes the reel for a different film. Yeah, it's like Sleeping Beauty Rubbish Edition. <laughs> um, that's what left me with that really strong feeling of like, wait, where the hell am I? Yeah. Where am I in this film? Like, at the point where we get the big twist, which is the twist from Frozen, yeah. where it's like, oh, it's not the true love's kiss of this random prince who's just some extraneous twerp in this it's the true it's the kiss of maternal love that, that yep. Maleficent plants on her forehead in a world where they hadn't just released Frozen I like that yeah as a story point but here it's just like look even if you did develop this either at the same time or even before Frozen came up mm. with it you've already released Frozen and by this point, Frozen is already the highest grossing animated film of all time. Yeah. You can't pretend that no one noticed yeah. that you did this in Frozen. Yeah. You can't just end with that same note. Yeah. So the the prince is introduced sort of ten minutes before he's got to do the true love's kiss anyway. Yeah. So they didn't fool me into thinking they were in love. And I, I know that's kind of the point. They're, they're all going like, ah, this isn't going to work. This is just some twerk. But like, I don't know. I feel like it would have been a more interesting twist if... if There'd been more time. Yeah, yeah. If they'd known each other. Yeah. Um, well, like they like they did with Kristoff and yes. and Hans in um, exactly Frozen, who at various points in the film you can credibly believe that's right, yeah. may administer true love's kiss. Absolutely, yeah. Or at least in a Disney film. Yeah. Whereas in this, not even in Disney parameters. Yeah. They, not even in like you know 1950s animated Disney parameters had they spent enough time together to be in love. No. Um, they hadn't done a song. They hadn't done anything. What if the prince had asked her for direction. <laughs> yeah. She'd been scared of him. Then that get- felt weird. By the way, yeah, the introduction of of like this is the here's a couple. Let's start it with the girl scared of the boy, but he pesters anyway. Like that seems like that's from old Disney films. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't mind that as a kind of a, a, the the basic idea of when you've established the girl as being otherworldly in some respect. That's all right if she's just scared of him because because he's a scary man. Well, um, it wasn't that. He was very much a Disney Channel pretty man. Yes, he and he seems to be being used for that reason because he was he was the new Orlando Bloom type in the most recent Pirates of the Caribbean as well that Um, makes sense uh, but it's difficult to know how deliberate any of it is because were we was it supposed to be a twist were we supposed to be 100% sure he wouldn't be love's true love's kiss or were we supposed to be thinking that he was were we supposed to be thinking he was more an involved character than he was maybe he was in a previous version (laughs) maybe he wasn't maybe he wasn't supposed to be and we were supposed to think of him as an intruder in the story it was very unclear what I was supposed to feel yeah. like uh, 
most of the second half of this film. But he did feel like an intruder. He felt even more than Maleficent like he was watching from the bush. Because, like, yeah. in, the, in the scenes he was in, there's even that bit right at the end, like in the last scene, and Aurora looks over, and there he is, more or less watching from a bush. And they Why was he even there? Yeah, I don't, don't know. know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but, yeah, like... Ultimately, though, he is, he's ultimately just a road bump, and he's treated he's a as a red road herring. bump. Yeah, he's and... nothing but a red herring. We talked about the red herringness of some of the characters in Frozen, yeah. but at least they were also something else. This yeah. kid is nothing. There is no personality on him. He adds nothing to the story. He contributes not at all. Yeah. He is a red herring, and that's all. And unfortunately, he doesn't serve as one because of that. I knew yeah. that kiss wasn't going to work. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't know exactly how it was going to work, but I knew that it was going to be the act of true love. I that was yeah. I knew it was going to be from Maleficent by that time. Yeah, and I that's fine. I like that. It's just it wasn't handled right. Yeah, and but I suppose there's nothing wrong. I suppose there's nothing wrong with having this and Frozen come out, you know, close to one another when we accept all of those Love's First Kiss Disney animated films as being from the same canon as well. There's no reason not to have this new revised version of it be from some films. But the thing is, though, this is not. This is clearly not intended to be a no. new universal archetypal no. template. It's supposed to be an interesting twist. Exactly, yeah. Like, you know, you you can't have multiple horror films end with he was a ghost all along. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that yeah. can't whereas you can have multiple horror films end with oh the villain wasn't really dead and they're coming back yeah. for one final confrontation. One is a a broadly accepted story template. One is no that's a really specific yeah. plot point that you can't just have become the new standard of storytelling. Yeah. Um it's odd, isn't it? It's really weird. Yeah. That was the point, by the way, at which I looked up and found out that this film came second. For yeah. the moment there, I was thinking Frozen copied this. Yeah. And it, and it was free to do so because this wasn't that culturally significant. Yeah. But uh, no, no, this copied Frozen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, and that's... Or it at least came after Frozen. Yeah, I'm sure it didn't. I'm sure it was a coincidence. But the, even though it would have been written and filmed and yeah. in production before Frozen came out, yeah. the executives, it's the same company. Exactly, that's knew. the thing. That's that's the thing that makes it inexcusable. Yeah. It's the fact that, like, if you were a different studio mm. and you're like, oh, crap, Frozen beat, beat us to the punch, but we really wanted our film to yeah. be like this, so let's yeah. let it stand you alone. You claim you were already making ants. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Um, but, um, no, with this... No, you can't. Yeah. You cannot end this film in the same way. And but yet, you cannot end it any other way based on the what the story has been going like. Otherwise, it would made it would have made the Sleeping Beauty part of the story completely irrelevant. But maybe the Sleeping Beauty part of the film shouldn't have been in there well, into some it. capacity. This is where we're the, what we're what we're ending up at. I think is that this is a good story about a fairy tale esque villain. Yeah. It was the fact that it had to be Maleficent that causes the problem. Yeah, because her character arc is introduced really strongly and then it isn't allowed to go anywhere because the story of Sleeping Beauty completely sidelines her. Yeah. And this film didn't think of anything convincing or compelling new for that character to do given that they weren't going to budge on the fact that, yeah, but it's still going to be Sleeping Beauty, basically. Yeah, see, what they do in Wicked... Um, 
Now, I've read the book of Wicked and I haven't seen the show, so, yeah. so I, I can only really go with how the book goes, but I think it's similar in the show. You only get Wizard of Oz in the last chapter yeah. of the book, like a couple of chapters. It's always there in the periphery. You can always see the seeds that are leading up to it, the characters that are going to turn out to be someone from it. Yeah. But it doesn't happen until the very end. Yeah, yeah. The actual story we're presented with is only what happens in her life and it lasts the duration. Yeah. Maybe they should have done something like that here. Yeah. But then it wouldn't have been Disney's... Clearly it was important to them that this be a sort of Sleeping Beauty remake. Yeah. I just don't... I think that that shouldn't have been important to them. What should have been important to them was the most effective way of telling this story. And this is not that. No. It's close. It's near it. You can see it from this film. Yeah. It's not quite this film. It doesn't... It doesn't get there in any dimension, to completion at least. And in fact, almost as if to acknowledge this, it gradually just stops trying, doesn't it? It moves further and further away from what Sleeping Beauty is until you get this thing where, like I say, she's not the dragon. Yeah. And that... Now she's fighting the king on a rooftop like it's the end of an Iron Man film. Or like it's the end of Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. And they recreate the whole sequence. Yeah, yeah. They are on the castle. They have the bit where the beast, stroke Maleficent, is holding him up and gradually her whole face rearranges into kindness and she puts him down and then he attacks her and then they fall off the thing and he falls to it's the same Linda Wolverton wrote I was about to say at this point you kind of got to say come on she's written that scene three four times now if you include this film three times if you just include Beauty and the Beast (laughs) she did the film the stage show and the remake she loves that scene doesn't she it's a good scene she likes to like it (laughs) yeah and I like Stefan's death scene was really weirdly edited. That was very weirdly edited. They didn't. Obvi- it's fine. They didn't want to show the crunch of body on cobble. Yeah, that's okay. It's just that instead they showed us this. He falls. You get this really slow motion drifting fall, and then it cuts immediately to like after he's landed. Yeah, it does show us Maleficent, but there is not enough time for it to be he's landed and then she flies down. It's. The, the timing is all... Well, I suppose in real life they would, because the fall would actually be extremely fast. But yeah. the universe it's presented us with, of this slow-motion fall, then Maleficent's face, and now it's like he's been on the ground for ten minutes. Yeah. It's... The timing's off. Yeah. I look at it, and I just think, like, an experienced director yeah. wouldn't do that. Yeah. I just think this is a little bit too tricky a project for who they gave it to. And clearly they realised that, and so they hired someone else in to help help out with it. It's just... If they'd given this guy something like like the recent Beauty and the Beast, which is just a completely yeah. straight down the line remake, and then he can just paint by numbers. Yeah. But this requires a very specific juggling of tone, progression, the way things are going to be ordered, the way that like how can we juggle the sympathies of these various characters? How can we put this character at the foreground even though it's technically this other story and someone with a really deft hand needed to tackle yeah. these questions not a newbie learning the ropes of how to direct a film and yes isn't it odd shouldn't they have swapped the directors round between this and cinderella yeah right. yeah i think so because cinderella was kenneth Branagh. Man. Yeah, yeah kenneth Branagh. he knows what he's doing yeah a very he experienced old hand yeah yeah whereas cinderella is essentially I mean, I haven't seen it, but it's Cinderella. It's a straight fairy tale. It's got it's got new wrinkles, but it's sure. a straight fairy tale. That bit with the the Stefan's death and the timing of that. I suppose I don't know where the line is in between director and editor in a thing like yeah. that. Yeah, but that's the only really weird bit 
that like yeah we've talked about structural problems now it doesn't quite hang together yeah that you have to dig deep to get to that just from a moment to moment i'm watching a real film the yeah. rest of it is a real film that's the bit that doesn't that that doesn't work so with that batting average on that sense put on a very simple to construct film like a remake of cinderella whatever yeah. it turned out to be under kenneth branner it might have been something different before yeah that would have made much more sense. Yeah. Than to put them on, on, on something like this that... The challenging the revisionist one, stage yeah. ...requires a deft hand. Yeah. yeah, it does. And also, I just want to throw in a quick note about the way it ends, specifically. Yeah. Because, all right, so the way it ends is that Maleficent, she's, you know, her soul is essentially reclaimed through, you know, like, basically, you know... Again, completing the quite nice bit of thematic resonance that the two women mm-hmm. realise that that they are both victims mm-hmm. of men's power struggles here and that they shouldn't, you know, that they shouldn't be at each other's throats for that reason. They come together, they form a bond, yeah. and in doing so, they are able to kind of basically overthrow the patriarchy. Yeah. Um, that's absolutely what happens. Both of them reclaim their agency, and in Maleficent's case, that's very, you know, that's visually communicated by the regaining of her wings. Yeah. And so at the end, Maleficent is basically the, 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 the benevolent guardian of nature again, and Aurora is basically the queen of the human kingdom. And they bring, they bring unity to both worlds. And we close out with the narration by Janet McTeer, who she starts out the narration with, like, I'm going to tell you a story that you may think you've heard Mm. before and starts out with a description that might be of Sleeping Beauty, but then obviously as you see the film pan out, it's like, you know, this isn't like Sleeping Beauty at all, even though parts of it are way too much like Sleeping Beauty, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Then at the end, it's like, and that was the story. That wasn't how you. Uh, mm-hmm. That that wasn't how you'd been told. Not how it. you've been told. It. That's it's not how you've been told. It? It's a bit different. And I would know because I am Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. And does that make any sense? Though is was my main overriding question. Like, why would we have been told not this version of the story? Mm. That would that would make sense if, if the King had been able to write the history books. Exactly. The yeah. the victors write the history books. Yeah. Maleficent wins here. Yeah. And she And Aurora. And win. Aurora win. They 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 form a glorious new yeah. kingdom where everything is super nice yeah. and peaceful. Why would we have why would who is the kind of the force of revisionist patriarchy yeah. who has been telling us this this version of you know, within the context yeah. of this universe? That's a very good point. Where did this this version of the story where Stefan was a great guy and Maleficent was just this horrible dragon uh, dragon monster. Yeah. Where, where within the reality <laughs> of this film, did that story even come from? Yeah. Like, huh. this, that, what she said would have made a lot more sense if, like, this had been the story of how Maleficent was secretly doing cool yeah, things yeah, yeah. all in along. in the background and no one ever appreciated it or whatever. And, like, that she's the unsung hero yeah. of this story, but, and that, like, nobody in the kingdom of at large knew that except Aurora, and she always remembered, and now she's telling mm. you the real story. Like, this isn't, this isn't what the history books said, because, you know, other people are out the history books, but, but I, I remember. Yeah. No, the history books will say that, yeah. like, Stefan was a dick. And yeah. died, and then we ushered in a kingdom, like a, a, an era of like you know feminist nature worship yeah. and greatness. 
And like, like I said, where would this other version of the story have come from? So I guess all we can assume is that a few years later, they get taken over by angry internet guys <laughs> who overthrow the queens. Well, so like, and they write the history books. That's bleak, isn't it? Yeah. Look forward to Maleficent 2. <laughs> yeah, which is happening. Which is apparently happening. Yeah. And I don't know why. <laughs> no, but it worked for Alice, didn't it? No, it didn't. No, it didn't. But it did for us. Artistically, it did. <laughs> sort of. Might be good, is what I'm saying. Like, because they really seem to be... It seems to be something they're making progress on now. Yeah. You know, it's not like, oh, they said they were going to do it a couple of years yeah. ago. Like, there's new news coming out about yeah, yeah. it. Like, it's, even yeah. up until a couple of months ago, they yeah. they seem to have tagged uh, Joaquin Renning, who was one of the two directors of the most recent Pirates film, which was okay. Right. So he's okay. But he's an experienced director, at yeah. least. Um and you know they've hired someone to do another draft on Linda Wolverton's script, and so it's it's happening. Maleficent did really well for itself, really well in yeah. like seven hundred and fifty odd million, which was more than I thought it had done. That's a really is a lot of money for a, a film like this. It was clearly popular. It clearly there was clearly a lot of demand for a film like this. Mm-hmm. I just. I don't know, though, if this has scratched that itch. It seems to be part of a... There is some sort of thing going on that this slots into. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but I was over at Asda. Yeah. And in the book section, they've actually got this line of, like, like kind of young adult looking, but mostly, I think it's for, like, younger girls than that, but who want to aspire to reading young adult novels, about Ursula and Maleficent, and well, yeah. maybe not Maleficent because of this, I don't know, but I think she's one. And, like, you know, the... the um, I think maybe even Cinderella's evil stepmother and like these these sort of female these villainesses from Disney have their own novels now. Yeah. That seem to take it seriously and be a sort of like but here's what was going on with her. Yeah. Um now so which suggests that this revisionist film, Ursula. Yeah. Exactly. Which suggests that this film But is, Ursula. I know. I know, I, exactly. What possible excuse could Ursula have for anything? I don't know. Exactly. I mean, uh, and maybe that maybe I didn't look at them long enough, and <laughs> I certainly didn't read them, so I don't know how it pans out or if that is the way the book actually is. But am I being too to be hard out. on Ursula here? What do you mean? Like, no. You know, is Ursula like a? Is she like one of the better villains in terms of? I mean, I know she's a great villain. Yeah. But is she like one of the more sympathetic villains? No, I don't think so. She's, no, there's no. There's no call for a revisionist Ursula backstory, certainly. She is just a nasty old lady yeah. who lives in a cave yeah, yeah, yeah. and just wants to mess people up. Yeah. But maybe that's me. Maybe that's me. No, that is, no, that's maybe that's me, the patriarchy talking. <laughs> no, I think that's what it is. They did attempt, they expanded her a little bit for um, uh, the stage version and at the same time slimmed her down quite a lot. Right, okay. Um, she didn't look like Ursula. But the backstory was that she was uh, Triton's sister and there was something about oh, how she okay. thought she would. She, she used to live the good life and then he banished her and became the sole king. Because she was weird and an octopus. Was, yeah. <laughs> There was, a, but it, even in that, it's not presented as like a wicked. It's like she's she's a big pantomime dame, and she's yeah, yeah. It, you're always un, you always understand that she's bad. It's like this is again, this is the point that makes sense in her head. Yeah, but it's not a good reason for why she's doing. Yeah, what she's and, doing. and even though, as she sings her song about the good times, it's still about how we used to be able to just crunch people's heads under our stalls <laughs> all <laughs> right, okay, It's yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's quite a good song. There are bits okay. on that album that are worth listening to. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, this is the thing with Maleficent. It's like I said um, near the beginning of this. I think that a film like this is actually timelier now than it was in 2014. Definitely. Yeah. 
Which um, is a weird thing to say because it's it's been a busy three yeah, years. We, we're not in 2037 here. <laughs> no, no, no. But I feel like there's potentially more more kind of relevant stuff they can go to with a story of this kind than there was with Looking Glass. Yeah. Which, like I said, like I think with Alice, they kind of like paid the price of going back to a series that people mostly went a because 3D was hot and b because Johnny Depp was hot. Yeah. And neither of those things were true in 2016. Whereas sort of feminist revisionist... Revisionist. Feminist revisionist. Feminist revisionist fairy tales and like stories that go back to, I suppose in a sense, reclaim um, cultural touch points for a more, I guess, in a sense, progressive uh, mindset. That is in. That is in. It's like, you know, it's not... It's not like the gender-swapped version of... You know what I mean? Like, yeah. we, no one's asking for the gender-swapped version of Maleficent. But people do also want the stuff that is a bit more political yeah. about it. Like, Maleficent is a quite a politically-minded yeah. film, or socially-minded, so to speak. No, way, um, more, way more than uh, than Alice was. Because yeah. even though that was this so-called feminist revision of Alice, yeah. it, it was kind of difficult to even notice. Yeah, and plus the version of, like, patriarchy or whatever mm. that Alice was making a stand against was the version of patriarchy that existed in 1900. This is a better film than that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely a better conceived film than that. And like I said, the ideas that this film plays with, A, it has some, yeah. and B, those ideas are going to play better now yeah. than anything that either Alice film did, really. Yeah. So I suppose in that respect, maybe there is maybe there is scope for them to make either another Maleficent film or another film like Maleficent. Mm. Another film with Maleficent's sort of spirit and its intentions. Yeah. Um, the fact that the first one did as well as it did shows that that there was demand even in 2014 before, like, a lot of the issues that it so directly raises yeah. really exploded into the zeitgeist. Mm. And so now it maybe feels like maybe they have an even better opportunity to do that. It's just... Can they still do it with Maleficent if they do another Maleficent film? Yeah. Or is that well poised? Well, well, that's one way of putting it. Another way is that they have told that story now. Like yeah. the Maleficent, that whole arc. I do think it's genuinely really clever to turn this story into this. I think it's all very good. Yeah. And it's done. It's finished. It, yeah. It just wasn't done well. It just wasn't done as well as its own premise. Yeah. Would suggest, and so do, would a sequ- would a sequel just be them trying to take another crack at it to do it better? Yeah, but with what? It's, with what? The story yeah. finished. It's done. Yeah. The story about that finished. So all they're left with now is like, what do we do? By the way, I think I read the scene differently to you. I got, I think I got caught up on the. Um, there's a moment in that um, narration towards the end, leading up to the coronation of Aurora. Yeah, where it says something about Maleficent. She, it says something like she took off her crown. Yeah. And I took that to mean renounced her power. And so now, as we're crowning Aurora in the fairy kingdom, I thought, oh, right, it's the decision she made earlier. She's going to spend her life here with her. She's the queen of the fairy kingdom. So who's in charge in the human kingdom? Just nobody. And that's what I thought it was. I thought we were left with a fairy kingdom. I think what that was supposed, what we were supposed to take from that is that, like, Aurora is the queen of the human kingdom because, you know, that's the line of succession. She literally is the queen of that. Yeah. Um, but that Maleficent is... That it was it was weird that she pronounced herself the queen yeah. of the okay, fairy yeah. kingdom. And that, you know, 
So with the thorns coming down, there is now just the kingdom of which Aurora is the queen because she's got a foot in both worlds. Well, not no. I think it's no. like she's still the queen of the human kingdom, but now the the, the fairy land is just a free place yeah. of of fun and unthreatened whimsy yeah. again. It was it was presented as a dark, weird thing earlier yes. in the film when Maleficent, after really kind of like being burned, goes and builds herself a throne yeah. and like makes people start kneeling to her. I think the idea is it was a happy commune. Yeah. And then Maleficent made herself the ruler of it. Got it, got it. And now she's going back to just being a benevolent guardian. Yeah. But now those two kingdoms can coexist yeah. peacefully. And it was... that The coronation did happen in the fairyland, didn't it? There was all magic people around and it was all twinkly looking and lovely. Yeah. I mean, but I feel like they they did that mostly because that's the place that we like more yeah, than... Yeah, for the visual. Rather. Yeah. It just seems like... It's I don't, odd that there wasn't a, a crowning ceremony in the castle. I mean, maybe there was, maybe there but was. it wasn't in yeah. the film. But, it, it, you know, this does double underline your point of the fact that this story's finished. It's finished. It's very finished. Yeah. Um, really, the only story there is to tell now is retaliation stories about, yeah. you know, someone who was on King Stefan's side fighting back or something, which would be gross. I don't want to see that. Yeah, and, if, and, it, and it would feel like a repetition. Yeah. Like I said, the only thing... The only thing that the only reason I can see to do it is to try and do the same theme but better. But yeah. I can't see that you'd accomplish that with a sequel, no. given that you're you know you've already burned through this story once before. And also, you've burned through Maleficent as a villain. Yeah, that's gone. Yeah, she's just really cool now. Yeah, and it's, that's fine. Okay, she's a well-designed character, and I'd like to see more of her. And Angelina Jolie was great as her. Yeah. But it's not a story. What do you do with yeah. Maleficent was cool? Because, see, again, maybe I'm just being cynical, but I feel as if they would turn her back into a villain, at least temporarily, and it would be a story about something like that. And Because she's Maleficent. Because she's Maleficent, and again, that would be a retread. So Yeah. I think they need, frankly, look, Disney isn't going to do what Disney are going to do. Yeah. But I think Disney need to accept that they tried something with Maleficent. It was a good thing to try. Mm -hmm. It was a good property to use mm -hmm. to try that idea with. Mm -hmm. And they didn't do it right. In terms of its commercial and sort of cultural footprint, it was okay. Yeah. But they could have done it better. So it's done. That's, it's that door's done. closed. But they sh I think they should take on the idea that they can do those stories. Yes. They can do more of those stories. And yes. frankly, they can do those stories better yes. than they did with this. Just not with Maleficent. Yeah. You know what? Look, just go back. Go back with a bigger dump truck of money yeah. to Stephen Schwartz's house. Yeah. And just say, yeah. look, can we, can we pull this... Help us pull this thorn out of our thumb. Yeah. Just give us wicked, for God's sake. Yeah. Like, we need we need to exercise this ghost from our system. <laughs> Please. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like... And it, we, people want to see it done. There's, yeah. You know, they, I remember there was a, a, a little bit of excitement when, um, you know, Les Mis happened. And yeah. And as a result of that, Into the Woods happened. And it was this, like, we're getting wicked, we're getting wicked. No, no. It's still, it's still meant to be happening. I know, it's always meant to be happening. But, I mean, it's, it like, has a date and everything. Oh, does it? Yeah. What is it? Like, 29, like, like Christmas 2019 or something oh, like that. that's not far off. Um, but, you know, I've not heard much of I think Stephen Daldry's attached to it. Um... The guy who directs like Billy Elliot and stuff yeah. like that. But if that happens, then Disney will never get that out of their system. I feel like Disney, for their sake, need to make it. <laughs> I don't think they'll get to. No. But... And I kind of don't really want them to. I mean, End of the Woods wasn't great. You know, it was fine, but... Yeah, yeah. But 
I think they'll keep telling stories like that. Yeah. And I think they should. I think it's relevant. Yeah. It's certainly one of the kinds of stories that people want a culturally responsible entity like that mm-hmm. to be telling. Yes. Um, and like I said, they've shown they're interested and Frozen has shown that they can do it pretty well. Yeah. This this shows that they can also do it not so well, but yeah. I hope that Frozen and Maleficent are kind of the start of a broader lineage of like films that are like this that make these kinds of interesting sort of progressive feminist points. Yeah. So I hope they're better in future. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So there um, Yeah, I think I think that's Maleficent. That's pretty much Maleficent. So uh, what next? What is next? What is next? I think the next one is Cinderella, to be honest. Oh, is it? Oh, I hope so. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Yeah, I'm going to be very interested to see what you think of that. I've seen that one. I very much enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very simple film um, that I like more than the animated one because I don't like the animated one. No, we found, didn't we? Um, But... More on that next episode. More on that next episode. Um... Until then, I guess do other things that yeah. aren't listening to this podcast. Did we end up with a sign-off? Oh, go away! Yeah, go away! <laughs> we need a proper one. <laughs> That's not good enough. It doesn't have our name in it. Jahan! <laughs> I meant serious business! Alright. <laughs> Dave! <laughs> Bye. Bye! Serious business! <laughs> <laughs>